welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Uh, I'm here this week with international lifestyle brand and actual human being, Stacy Garcia. Uh, Stacy, welcome to On the Record. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Sure. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk about your career. Uh, as, as we you know, do a little research for, for these things, we find out s- such interesting things about um, you know, people's life and their, their stories. Can you, for our, our listeners, can you give us a little bit about, uh, I'm really particularly interested in how you got started in design. Was this something like from a very early age? It was. I, I think, you know, kids have different um, interests, right, and, and things that float their boat and different passions. And, you know, I have four children, actually, so I'm, I'm witnessing it now firsthand as a mother, you know, watching your children shine in different areas. So when I was a kid, I was definitely more um, art inclined, I would say. So my extracurricular activities were always doing sort of ceramics and sewing. And I took a class called dollhouse making, and we were making furniture for dollhouses and, you know, just really always loved the arts. And that was my passion from, from when I was a kid, it was sort of the area that I shined. And I was fortunate that I had parents who encouraged it, you know, who, who were, brave enough to not worry that I would end up in a cardboard box as a starving artist. Right. Didn't say, no, you have to be a dentist. Exactly. Exactly. So it was, it was good. Um, so tell me, like, at what point did you decide, I'm going to go to school for this? This is what I want to do. Um, I always admire people who have such a clear direction so early. Yeah. So again, kind of following that path of the arts, um, was guided early on as many designers, you know, probably have a similar story. I had a great teacher in high school who helped develop out a portfolio and ended up getting um, a bachelor's in fine arts from Syracuse University. So it was a wonderful fine arts program, you know, with painting and drawing 2D and and then three-dimensional industrial design sort of core classes. And then we broke off into... um, sort of the, the areas that we were more hyper-interested in. And I, I had bounced around within that uh, School of Visual and Performing Arts into a couple of majors and landed on something called surface pattern design. So I was watching one of my sorority sisters, you know, sitting at a table and hand-painting these, like, really detailed, well, look like wallpaper. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, this is, you know, a project for my major. And it was like, well, that's even a major. Like, who knew that that was something that you could actually get a degree in? And I took a class, and I was totally hooked. It was fabulous. We learned how to do everything from tile to wallpaper, gift wrap, um, dishes, textiles, you know, you name it. We were sort of being trained in the technical design of putting patterns into repeat or applied um, decorative arts. And um the rest was kind of history. I mean, it was it was just a really great degree, and it's been um, it sort of pointed me on the path to do the things that I've done. So I'm always interested when you look at people's biographies and you look at their resumes. For example, you started early in your career working uh, selecting color palettes and assisting in design for Ralph Lauren Home. 
But there's always, I think, a kind of interesting. How did you find that path? How did you find that um, that opportunity? Yeah, that's a great question because you know, I, I, for lack of dating myself, but you know, it is what it is. At the time, I mean, this was pre-internet. Like you know, in college, I started with a brother word processor, so you couldn't just Google, you know open up um, internships or job applications on LinkedIn or indeed, you know, it was a completely different time. I was fortunate that I had professors who were really well connected in the industry. And so they were constantly working to help recruit and, and fill positions for the alumni. And it had a really strong alumni network because it's, it's this tiny little major that at the time, I want to say there were three or four schools that offered degrees in surface pattern. I want to say maybe there's one or two left. So um, Syracuse actually doesn't have the major anymore. They have course loads in it, but it's lumped in with their textile programming. Um, so it's not a separate major any longer. So at the time I had a great professor and um, the opportunity came up. Ralph Lauren recruited from Syracuse and I applied and I remember going on the interview and being really intimidated. I mean, it was this is like Big corporate office on Madison Avenue in Manhattan near Bryant Park. And, you know, you take the elevator up to, I don't know, the 28th floor or something, and the elevator doors open, and it's like you're walking into somebody's mansion. You know, the whole thing is just completely tricked out with antiques and floral arrangements and, and like a double entry space with a giant staircase. And it was definitely intimidating. Um, you know, went in to interview with the um, head of the studio in their home furnishings division at the time, a woman named Rose Gong. And she was, you know, she was lovely. And they were, look, they, you know, at that point, they, I think they went off of the referral stream and I guess I interviewed well enough or had a you know solid enough portfolio that um, I was offered the gig. And I remember the advice she gave me because, you know, I wasn't sure what the the dress code was. Right. So I had dressed up for the interview and um, had, you know, long, fancy nails. And at the time I was dating my boyfriend who ended up becoming my husband. He was an accounting major. And accountants, you know, that you wore a suit and it was very formal. And he, he kept saying to me, you know, I think you need to go more formal. I think you need to go more formal. And so I just, you know, had the chutzpah to ask this woman who was interviewing me, what's, you know, what should I wear? How should I dress? You know, what's the dress code here? And she said to me, dress how you aspire to be. Oh, great answer. I thought it was like words of wisdom that have stuck with me, you know, at this point, probably 30 years. Um yeah, dress how you aspire to be. You know, if you aspire to be, you know, the leader, you dress as the leader. If you aspire to be, you know. So how yeah. did you interpret that and how did that translate to how did how you dressed? What was your, what would you consider to be your signature look at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think I've cultivated my style over the course of many years and it's an ever-evolving thing. And at that point, you know, I definitely... Um, was not a, a jeans kind of girl. I mean, I, I was coming in, I would say like designer work clothes, you know, so I was coming in dress pants and then like a funky blazer, you know, um, and a, and a cool necklace. So I definitely remember, um, going shopping and, and, you know, picking outfits that were probably a little dressier, you know, not, um, stuffy, certainly not conservative, but, 
at the time it was, you know, it's a different day. Today, jeans are totally acceptable in many offices. And when you see someone in a suit, you sort of look sideways and go, they must be a lawyer or a politician. You know, people, I think dress down Friday is something that has trickled down to many days of the week today. But um, at the time, yeah, I, I was definitely dressing more um, professional, let's say. And it's interesting because from there, um, that, you know, was a great resume builder it was a great exposure um, to the world of licensing. It was great exposure to the world of branding, to the the magic that happens when you're really creating a lifestyle. It, because it was not just designing one wallpaper. It was designing a whole experience. And the showroom development um, was something I was able to be exposed to. And everything from signature scent to horticulture you know what what was the the florals and and fauna that were being curated for the spaces depending on what they were there was not a detail that was missed and i think that level of thought and care that went into curating those spaces you know speaks to the the longevity of the ralph lauren brand and certainly lit a fire you know in my belly to say wow there's like look at what's possible here you know look at look at what's possible so it was certainly a, an incredible experience and um you know it was interesting back to the dressing i mean i was i was a young kid after ralph i graduated and and got a job in industry and people always thought i was older than i was and at the time i loved it you know i would say they would say oh how old are you and i'd say how old do you think i am and maybe I'd be 22 and they'd say, oh, you know, 29. And I'd say, yes, yes. <laughs> I never corrected anybody because I wanted to be perceived as, as highly professional, as highly capable. And, and many times, you know, as a young woman, you you want to be given the better assignments. You know, I wanted to be able to travel. I wanted to be able to hang with the executives. And so perception became reality at the time. For a lot of furniture designers and um, people who have been in the furniture industry, being a woman um, is often an obstacle to be overcome. And there are challenges with being given the respect that, that you deserve. Did you find that to be in the fashion world or where you were there? Or was there was that a, a community that was a little more enlightened and a little more accepting? You know, it's it's been interesting to sort of witness the transformation um, firsthand. And at the time, it it was the same. You know, I was in the textile industry, in the schmata business, you know, really um, developing textiles first for catalog business. And then after that job, I, I took a job um, developing textiles for hotels. And and it was still very much an old boys club at the time, you know. So to, to be a young woman, um, you, you had to, you know, sort of fight for the respect or, again, you know, paint a picture of, of maturity and um, in order to earn the respect. And you also, at the time, I think, had to learn how to dust a lot of stuff off because there was, you know, and, and unfortunately still happens today, but much, much less, you know, when you see the whole Me Too movement, you know, things that were acceptable at the time would never be acceptable today. And I think that's a really good thing. And it, it helps to level the playing field. I think there's more work that has to be done. But you, you know, as a young woman, I was forced to develop a thick skin. You know, you could not be sensitive about some of the things that were said. And, um, 
you know, to look back on it now, you realize how inappropriate it was. I mean, I, I you know, went to a party and he's long past and he was a mentor of mine as well, one of my first bosses, but he was highly inappropriate. I mean, you know, we went out to a work event and um, he introduced me as his girlfriend. Ooh. And here I was a young professional, you know, trying to start my career and it was mortifying, you know, so I, those are things that stick with you in the career. I mean, again, he, he was um, a friend and mentor in the office, but, you know, could, could be exceptionally, you know, inappropriate at times. And, and so you had to, as a young woman, you had to learn how to dust that off and, um, and just, you know, put your head down and, and do your job really well. And let and me, overcome those things. Let me know? ask you, because even though the Me Too movement has has brought more awareness to that issue, there are still young women in the workplace who find themselves confronted with those kinds of things. What advice, I mean, having gone through a time where it was much more difficult, what advice would you give to to young women as they have to deal with that in their career? Yeah, I think today is, you know, it, like you said, it's it's always one of those things that's a fine line and you're sort of not sure what to do. And I, I remember really um, painting over how to handle it at the time and getting advice from other men who would never behave like that. You know, this was not only women who were going, I can't believe that. This was other men saying, you know, here's what I think you should do. Or, you know, so I was fortunate to, ha- to be surrounded by plenty of people who um, were were highly respectful and, and really true mentors to me as a professional. Um, ultimately, at the time, what I did was I ended up um, very respectfully confronting him and, and saying, you know, when you speak like that, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm here to do a job. You know, I, I need to be treated as a professional and we can't, we work together and that crosses a boundary that makes it unpleasant and uncomfortable for me to work. And I want to have a good working relationship. And he took the feedback and, and stopped. So I was fortunate that for me in that situation, you know, the harassment really did stop at that time. So I think, you know, you have to make the attempt to confront it, but, you know, today there are much more formal HR policies in place, and, and it's tough because you don't want a reputation. I remember at the time worrying, this was, again, well before the Me Too movement, what happens if I say something? And then, you know, he, he knew a lot of people in the industry. Am I going to be blacklisted from getting a job? You know, I, these were all decisions that weighed really heavily on a young woman. And, um, yeah, the advice, I think, is to just, you know, first of all, know that that is not it's not okay um, ever, you know, whether it's in a work situation or other, you know, that if you want to be treated in a certain way, you know, then you need to draw boundaries around how people treat you and be comfortable in that and communicate what those boundaries are for people. Um, And today, you know, I think you drive it up the flagpole, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you, you can have attempted a professional conversation to say this doesn't work for me and, you know, this is how I need you to behave around me and otherwise I can't work with you. And, and then you have to bring it to the higher ups. I mean, you know, it's, it's critical and and really it's the company's responsibility to create uh, a healthy, comfortable work environment. And today there are plenty of people who will take up the cause for a young woman, but even with that, I can imagine that it's still intimidating. You know, you're, you're making your way in an industry and you don't want to be that person. But, yeah, but on know, the other hand, okay. every time you tolerate you that, to, right? It, you yeah, just, you, you just you allow to, it to backslide. 
if you right, if we allow it, it backslides. And what happens when you speak up is it paves the way for a change. So speaking up is important. And you know, I've unfortunately, you know, I think what happens is there there was a changing of the guard, and that's a really good thing. But there's still some old school left over. And you know, I was joking with my mother recently about a, a, a recent incident with somebody who, you know, came into our office, an outside vendor, and, and made an inappropriate comment. And um, I said, okay, well, the good news is he is not invited back here anymore. You know, it's an outside vendor, so I have control over the situation, and that person um, will not be invited to, you know, make presentations here anymore. Um, but what happens, you know, if not, and, and we were sort of, she said, look, he's, He's old school. You know, the guy who was in your office is is old school. He came from that guard. Nobody's clearly filled him in on the fact that times have changed. You can't say that stuff anymore and that it's not okay. And, you know, back in the day, you would have called him a dirty old man, you know, and, and you would have brushed it off. So, but ultimately, it's the company's responsibility, like you said. And when we speak up, we pave the way to say, you know, we're here to do a job and we shouldn't be objectified. That's not helpful in me doing my job. Yeah. And I, I think to, to say, well, that's just old school is a way of making an excuse, isn't it? No doubt. And, and, you know, old school or not, the times have changed, you know, so you have to sort of get with the program or you, you gotta get out of the industry. <laughs> you know, it's like at a certain point. And, you know, it's interesting too, because I'm the mother of sons, you know, sometimes it's flipped and, and the women have to be careful now, you know, so it's not only one-sided. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it goes both ways. You know, the the, the it, it cuts both ways, and so I think you know on on both fronts, we just have to be respectful of the fact that we're here to do a job. Absolutely. You know, we're here to do a job, and and it's a much more productive environment when whatever it is, you know, for. And and listen, this is a hot button topic. I mean, it was the cover of USA Today today. You know, we shouldn't have discrimination in any form for any kind of, you know, whether obviously racial discrimination is a protected class. And right now, sexual orientation, you know, for our LGBTQ um, brothers and sisters is is right now um, still under the microscope. And, I, you know, to me, that's crazy. I think it's it's our job as a nation to do a better job protecting people and to make, you know, make it a place where it's pleasant to come to work. Well, that that actually leads in some way into um, you founded your own company at 26. And that, mm-hmm. that gives you the opportunity to create the kind of culture um, that you wanted. But before we get to the culture of your company, I'd like to ask you at 26, um, <laughs> that's a very young age that's that displays a, a great deal of confidence. Um, what was that like stepping out on your own? Yeah, um, I think, you know, at 26, you kind of don't know any better. So there's definitely something to be said for the ignorance is bliss um, sort of situation. And, you know, when you're the teenager and in your 20s, you're kind of invincible. And so I think I had that going for me. I think that, you isn't, know. Isn't that wonderful? That in, that invincible streak was on my side. Um, the good thing with it is I do think that it's something, it's like any other muscle. The more you work it, the the more confident you become with things. Um, I've seen that in myself, how, you know, there are, are business moves or there are strategic moves that I've 
made over the years and, and sort of bounce things off of various advisors who play it much more safe, you know, who wouldn't make those decisions or wouldn't have done those. And ultimately, you know, some of them have succeeded tremendously and some of them have failed. But ultimately, you know, the cumulative effect of it has been success. And so I think building that confidence is something that practice does make perfect. You know, the, the more you do it, the more decisive you get, the more confident you get. Um, but yeah, back in my 20s, you know, it's interesting. I was, I don't know why I, I was talking to a friend about this actually yesterday. Um, not to say I was in a rush, but I I always had my eye on the ball. You know, it was sort of like... Like you said, you've envied those people who knew what they wanted to do. So at a young age, I knew I was in the arts, ended up following that path through college, graduated, worked, you know, got sort of the the blessings or, you know, the hands of God on, on my life and being able to have experienced the Ralph Lauren and, um, you know, the textile things that I did with hotels, et cetera, and dated my husband really young. So, you know, he and I met not quite high school sweethearts, but high school friends and dated through college and, you know, was just sort of on a very clear path that this is who I was marrying. I'm very happy to report that we're 21 and a half years into this marriage and I still really like him. So that's really (laughs) good news. Um, You know, I'll keep him around and... um, Maybe another 21 more years. Exactly. Yeah, at least, you know, um, he's a good one. And we've grown together. But I think, you know, when you sort of have that vision and and you're fortunate, as I was, to find, you know, that person that I was going to spend my life with at at a young age. And, you know, so he and I have been co-pilots on this journey. um, It it makes it a little less scary, you know. So even though I didn't have a huge safety net, I definitely had an emotional safety net with my husband. And so I was married at 24. um, Me too. You know, got... We we were, like I said, I was sort of on the fast track with a lot of things, you know, um, got pregnant a year later. Not and me. then while I was pregnant, incorporated the first business, you know, so it was always sort of in my plan that I, I knew I wanted to have a company. I, you know, I had a vision that I was going to build a brand after the Ralph days and, and said, hey, this makes sense. You know, this what's this whole licensing game? This makes sense to me. Um, and you know, kind of never really looked back. I mean, it wasn't all rosy. So, you know, we were a young couple, like there was definitely the pain points of it were he was miserable in his job. He left. We had our first townhouse. We had like every penny we had saved to buy this first home so that we could have a home for our baby and, you know, not put him in a dresser drawer in Manhattan in a tiny walk-up apartment where we were living. And we felt like we had made it, like we were playing grown-ups. We were going to be parents and, you know, we had this mortgage and this was all very real. And then he didn't have a job. Um, and rather than going to get another traditional job, he went into startup mode um, and ended up starting a business with my father. So they weren't, he wasn't drawing a salary at the time. And then I had this brilliant idea that I was going to go license my name. You know, I was going to create these collections. And I pitched um, to every fabric company that would take a meeting with me and kept hearing no, like no, no, no. And again, was still working at, you know, kind of half in, half out of, of the work thing, planning this business um, while getting ready to have the first baby. And ultimately, I ended up, you know, quitting my, my day job, so to speak, 
And when I kept hearing no, my husband finally said, what do you need these companies for? Like, can't you just start your own fabric line? What do you need, you know, these manufacturers? Why do you have to license? And I was like, I guess I don't. I, I don't, you know, they, they have money. And he said, well, we have, we have equity in this house. Like, we put a down payment on it. And um, he, like I said, he was an accountant, so he was able to um, help me understand, you know, cost accounting and, and what it would cost to put a collection together and how I should price the collection. And he ultimately, you know, co-signed on the home equity line and allowed me to take $50,000, which was basically like everything we had saved up until that point. And um, I launched my first textile collection. So that's that's kind of how that went So let me see if I understand this correctly. Uh You are about to have a baby. Your, yes. your husband is starting a business and simultaneously yep, he's basically unemployed at that point. Uh-huh. We have a mortgage, you know, we had like a $200,000 mortgage and no income. And, and it's funny that you say that because it was like, well, a, what could possibly go wrong? Right. And B, <laughs> I can't imagine the accountant and he's putting together a spreadsheet of all the expenses. Like this is what it's costing, you know, for our, the mortgage, the utilities, the food, the, this, the, that. And then I had, you know, the, the expenses that I was working on for the business. And I said to him, you're the accountant, you know, what's missing from this. And he said, what? And I'm like, there's a big goose egg at the top of this. There's zero revenue. Like we have no income right now. And so what happened? Okay. So now you you've created your line. Who's your first customer? How do you, how do you turn the goose egg into a number? What'd you do? Yeah, I, what I did was I took, you know, probably a big chunk of that 50000 went into purchasing a trade show booth. I probably did everything you're not supposed to do, right? <laughs> I mean, but it worked. I, I spent money on a trade show booth so that I looked like a legitimate company. It was full on smoke and mirrors. Um, and I hired a PR agent so that she would go tell my story to people and help me, you know, train on how to run a trade show and drive booth traffic. And I took my sister and my uncle, neither of who knew a thing about textiles, but you can't work a trade show by yourself. And, and I, you know, hung my shingle at the trade show and I met people and I knew some people and, um, I hired four independent reps and came back to my office, took the drapes that were hanging at the trade show, rolled them out in my garage, chopped them up into memo samples, sent them to anyone who asked for them and scheduled meetings to work with these four independent reps and, and hit the ground running, started calling on, interior designers that were doing hotels. And within, you know, a couple weeks, I had my first order in hand from a purchasing agent who trusted my rep. So I I was really, you know, fortunate. I mean, again, I I don't take credit. I'm a believer. So I'm like, you know, to me, the, the hand of the higher power was all over this. There's no logical explanation about why a purchasing agent would give an order to a 26 year old kid, you know, um, or a few, a little older at that point, because I had, you know, planned the business and developed it. it took about a year, and uh, yeah. But but hiring PR as a first step, most companies don't even consider that as second, third, fourth. I mean, they feel like we need to reach a certain size. Do you, do you think that that helped you gain credibility more quickly? Made you look bigger than you were? I mean. I think so. I think it was kind of like, I don't know how I got the idea to do that. I, you know, I really, I have no idea what, you know, whispered in my ear to say, this is what you need to do. But I mean, it, it was great. And yeah, I got pickup. I mean, you know, from some of the trade publications at that first trade show and, um, 
Yeah. You know, was, and, and that I'm was curious. credibility. That went into the portfolio. Again, there was no website at the time. You know, we were what, just, was, uh, what was the name of that? What was the first trade show that you went to? The first trade show I went to was um, HD, Hospitality Design. I and, know that uh, In Vegas, yeah. Yep, so I took out a, a 10 by 10 booth and had, you know, at the time, a fabulous structure that, you know, I was warehousing in Las Vegas, and and it looked legitimate. You know, I wasn't doing pipe and drape. I was, you know, introducing myself as a new, young, hot designer, you know, with great patterns. And I, I did it all at first. You know, it was like me, myself, and I. Okay, so let's take it now, the next step, and how do you build on that to start – I mean, in your own words, it started out as smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Obviously, at some point, you start to get things behind that smoke, and it stops being smoke and mirrors, and it starts being a real deal. And it and, does. Okay, so it does. How do you how do you get from point A to point B? What was that process? I think, and I'm trying to remember. I I mean, I'm still a a avid reader. Um, and at the time, you know, was the same. I was just, you know, kind of consuming as much content as I could from other people on building a business, starting a business, running a business, making a sale, like all of this, because none of it was stuff I had training on in art school. Um, and somewhere I had read that if you, if you don't have an assistant, then you are your assistant. Like, if you're lacking an assistant, then in essence, by default, you become your own assistant and that that's like a horrible use of your time as a founder. And so pretty soon after that trade show, um, as I'm hustling to chop up samples and, you know, try to get things out the door, I realized very quickly I had better get an assistant. And and so I, you know, put an ad in the local paper and interviewed and hired a phenomenal woman. And she was with me until she moved to Rhode Island, but she, she spent a couple of years with me and had a smile on her face every day. You know, at the time we were working out of my basement, out of the townhouse. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have separate rents or anything and, you know, just kept my overhead really low and really lean and, and grew and have grown organically, you know, one by one. So, you know, we, then she and I got too busy and I put an ad, I called my old professor and I said, send me an intern. And then I ended up hiring the intern and then, you know, it just sort of grew until we were busting out of the seams. You know, I had, I think, four or five people working out of my basement in a small townhouse. And at some point it was like, we, we got we to gotta move. <laughs> we got a power move. And yeah, it's, it's grown over 20 years. So how did you, I'm curious, we, we started kind of talking about the culture you create when, when you're bootstrapping in that very early stage and, and it's just you and one or two people, um, culture is almost not a thing, right? It's just kind of you you and a couple well, of I friends. Think it's or you organic. And a couple of like, you know, when everyone started, you know, you're in that startup, the people who join you are are in that startup with you. And it's funny, I have um, our creative director has been with me 13 years. So she sort of started um, when we had hit the next level of growth, but we were still in a fairly, you know, that startup mentality. And the startup mentality is like, you know, it's not only take no prisoners, it's you, you work until you drop. <laughs> you know, it's like there's, there's a deadline. Okay, then we're going to stay till midnight to get it done. You know, there's nothing gets in between you and the next order and the next success. And so you do it, you know, at that point because you're limited on – dollar resources as a startup, many times, you know, you're just doing it on 
on sheer will and and a willingness of your team to be part of that success, you know, of that that just hustle, hustle. But at some point, you know, you realize that's not a sustainable way to to run and grow a business. You know, people, you you don't want to burn out. And um, at some point, you know, and, and we're sort of flash forwarding now, you know, probably whatever, five or six or seven years in that I, I was personally also starting to experience um, burnout. And my form of burnout was I would get sick. I, you know, I would like, I'd be good, good, good. And then I'd end up like with kidney stones in the hospital. Like it was not. Yeah. So, you know, it was these kind of crazy things. um, And it's like, okay, you know, there's, there's gotta be a better way. And then you begin. um, And I'm sure, you know, anyone who's listening to this, who has owned or operated a a business or been part of that startup mode real, you know, sort of feels that pain. You've got to begin to build systems. You've got to begin to layer your team they have to be empowered to make decisions, um, and and that's how you, like you said, the the smoke and mirrors. You know, I don't know if that ever fully goes away, right? Like you want to, every time you grow or every time you try to take on a new category, to some extent, you know, you're doing something you've never done before. So you you always have to have that leap of faith that goes with it, and and people have to believe in what your abilities are in order to do it. And you kind of fake it till you make it in that category, but as you grow the business and as the business hits different levels of maturity, you, you have to build in, you know, systems and process and, and management. For you, what was the point where you recognized, I need systems, I need process, and how did you go about creating that? Um, so with Libatex, which is the textile, you know, the, that first business that I started, the textile company that I started, we took on distributors. So probably... I'm trying to think maybe seven years in, you know, we had been running fully um, independent salespeople and I pivoted and I um, ended up negotiating to bring on three distributors that were covering the country with, with the Stacey Garcia brand. So um, they had that brand and then Libatex was doing sort of custom work and developing out, um, you know, mostly, mostly existed to produce the Stacey Garcia brand at the time. Um, And those distributors were larger than we were, and they had systems in place. And so they they ended up being really a a blessing in disguise because not only did they help us scale our revenue, but they forced us to mature as an organization. And um, so that was really, you know, one of the first times that beyond the systems that we had going, you know, in terms of um, decision-making or management, it was really... um, in order to support the growth that was happening with them, we had to put processes in place. And we ended up investing, you know, in, in business systems and IT and, um, you know, running off of platforms that would help us to be able to scale much more seamlessly. Now, how did you emotionally, psychologically, culturally make the transition from an entrepreneurial organization to uh a more structured organization? Were you conscious about, I want to start with the culture? Did the systems come first? How did that process work? I'm always curious how companies develop culture as they scale. Yeah, you know, it's a challenge. And and it continues to be something that is on my radar because it, it shifts. You know, there's sort of a natural occurrence that shifts the same way that, you know, you're not the same guy you were when you were in your, you know, 
college years or, um, you know, first starting out, you know, our perspective on life changes, our perspective um, and our attitude shifts about things. We gain more wisdom. And I think that is the same type of thing that happens in an organization, right? The, you know, the, the rules and the things that you could do in a, one chapter of life are different in another. And and we sort of are living it and, and it, as the leader and the owner of the organization, you know, still very conscious of wanting it to be a culture of, you know, not only like we talked about earlier, a very positive, healthy um, place to work where you feel respected by your peers, um, but also one that's creative enough. You know, I think there's a fine balancing act between um, implementing enough structure that there's you know, bones to the organism and the organization, but yet having enough creativity that it doesn't stifle um, the growth. Because with only structure, it becomes a rigid organization that can't be nimble as, as the dynamics of business shift. So you need both. Mm -hmm. So what is the dress code of your company now? <laughs> That's good. So um, I definitely, those are things I've gotten more lenient on um, over the years, but I still, there are still pet peeves of mine. So, you know, I, I have a, a no flip-flop policy, like it's not the beach. I, I don't like gym clothes in my office either, you know, so they, my team basically will tell you that. Um, for a long time, I had a no sneaker policy, but I've gotten more lenient on that because I know that that's kind of like the look that the young people do. They rock their funky sneakers. So I've, I've definitely gotten more lenient on that. Um, but yeah, you know, for me, I think, again, there's a fine line. I think it's a fairly casual office environment in terms of how people dress, but it's still a professional environment. And so I, I do have to hold the line um, in terms of what I'm comfortable with. Okay. So that's, you know, that's what you'll see in this office is a pretty casual place, but, you know, professional nonetheless. Casually hip. Yeah, I think so. Um, so you started out um, at Ralph Lauren learning about licensing. You started out wanting to license your name and then said, the heck with it. I'm going to make, you know, make, do my own stuff. And now you built up the licensing side of your business. How did that come about? And was that a, a very conscious stage that you wanted to reach or did you just get enough notoriety that you said you know what i can take the stacy garcia brand and i can license that into places that i may not want to organically grow myself yeah it's it was always the master plan so licensing was always the master plan at, at the time and it's interesting because you know there's there's pros and cons to it and i've spoken to other designers who have done it successfully and then I've spoken to people who were sort of cranky about it and said you know no that's I, I, I'm not into it I'm going to do my own thing um, but it was always my my plan because I believed in the value of partnering with excellent companies and when you bring their capabilities to the table along with your design talent or your vision that magic can happen and and we've been proof in you know in that we have license agreements that are going on also 13 14 years which is very rare um from what i've been told in the industry you know we we sort of get married and and have long standing relationships and successful growth with these companies which has been wonderful and it's given us exposure to other places but how it came about um really was 
probably a year after we had gotten started, you know, survived my first trade show, celebrated that we didn't fold year one because half of businesses fail that, you know, within that first 12-month period, and set up for the second trade show. And Hunter Douglas was sort of um, on the, the merger and acquisition path at the time. And they're back then, you know, where I think a billion dollar company, mm. um, they were buying up other businesses within the hospitality sector at the time. And so their then um, president of the hospitality division sort of, you know, circled the booth and started talking to us and said, listen, I don't know who you are, but you're busy and we're buying and we should talk. And I was super cocky. I was like, hmm, I'm in my 20s. Like, I'm not selling to you. <laughs> I'm not looking for an exit strategy. And my uncle, who was the same volunteer from year one, um, volunteered again year two and said, like, schmuck, take the meeting. <laughs> like, you should just talk to them. And um, we did. And I didn't end up selling the business, but I did put together a licensing deal with them. And I ended up spinning off a second company. Um, just to do the intellectual property and the licensing piece. And that's under the Stacey Garcia Inc. So, you know, Stacey Garcia Inc. is really my design house licensing company and a branding company. And it's, you know, it's grown tremendously since that first collection that we launched with Hunter Douglas. And um, we're in 23 different uh, license agreements, hotels and hospitality, and, um, and now expanding, you know, in, into other areas with new trademarks and, and new concepts. So we're really excited about what we're doing with this brand. But yeah, that was kind of the offshoot of it. Well, I think that's the perfect segue. I mean, <clears throat> we are heading into High Point Market and you are debuting a new licensing program here at the market and a new partnership. So let's break the news here today. Tell everybody what that's all about. I know. Well, I'm excited and we've been holding it in and I'm not good at keeping secrets. So I'm I'm so excited because we signed a deal with Klausner um, to work with them on their comfort design and Klausner outdoor divisions. Um, so we are going to be developing out products under the Stacey Garcia home brand and also helping them, you know, with some of their styling on their their other collections as well. And they've just been so terrific to work with and to develop product for. And I I'm, I cannot wait. We're going to be launching the first collection in April. and um, But like you said, announcing it in the October markets. And I just, I think they're ripe. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it from a designer perspective. And I think they bring so much to the table from their manufacturing capabilities. A product that is... I think so well priced for what it is that the design community is going to be really excited to start getting to know this group as a new resource. So people have to wait six or eight months to actually see the first Stacy Garcia products with Klausner. What should they expect in terms of the Stacy Garcia look, the Stacy Garcia brand? So first of all, I just wanted to you know reiterate, or I want to say that I'm so excited to work with this team in general. So, you know, I'm thinking about it from the designer perspective. There's so many different resources at market, right? There's so much to look at. It can be overwhelming. And there's a lot of clients out there who want a really good product, but you're also, you need to bring it in at a price that fits into a budget that you're trying to manage for clients. So I, I know because I'm friends with so many interior designers that there's a select few who have clients who are like, I have an unlimited budget. It's my third home. Have at it and surprise me when you're finished. Like that's the rare designer that gets those type of clients. 
most designers are servicing, you know, an area within a geographical arena and it's people's first homes or, you know, if they're lucky, it's a second home. But there's still a budget that they have to be conscious about. And it's the designer's pick, right? When they're specking something, it's their name on the line. It's their recommendation on the line. When I first discovered Comfort Design through Klausner, I was blown away. Like they're doing hardwood frames and it's it's done meticulously. There's an artisanship to it. It's a coil system that's so comfortable to sit on. And you're getting this like really high-end product for a price that like knocked my socks off. So I was so excited just about the resource, you know, forget about designing stuff for them. I just thought it was this untapped resource. And I was kind of like, how come I haven't ever been in this showroom before? How come I haven't seen this product? And when I toured their factory, I was just so impressed and so excited to dig in and start working with them. And they have a great outdoor product too. So we're going to be working with them on both their Klausner outdoor and comfort design upholstered furniture and developing out the Stacey Garcia brand under both of those. Are you still with That's me? exciting. Absolutely, I'm still with Okay, you. all right. I just want to make sure I'm like, you're quiet. I want to make sure you're still I'm listening so, yeah, intently. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. And then in terms of the aesthetic, what we did when we work with them, which is similar to what I do with most of our partnerships, is we first sort of audited their line, right? So I don't want to come in and give them stuff that they already had because they have a beautiful selection already. So they had some really great pieces already. What I wanted to do was open up areas that we thought were missing and that made sense for the Stacey Garcia home aesthetic. So the aesthetic that we're bringing definitely is a little more modern. It, it has a more sort of contemporary line to it, but it's also very eclectic. So our roots in hospitality, the whole idea of travel, totally inform the Stacey Garcia home look. It's a well-traveled, eclectic design sense. And there's anchored with pieces, you know, it's a, a more contemporary, more clean line approach. And then what we do is I'll sprinkle in a nod to traditional, but we'll do it in a contemporary way, a more modern, updated way, or a nod to bohemian. And so when we're approaching our collections, what we want are really livable, really usable, well-scaled pieces. And then what we're calling our hero pieces, because I think people like gone are the days where everything has to be matching. You know, that and, and the design community probably never subscribed to that to begin with, but ultimately we're selling to end consumers. So gone are the days that it all has to match. And what we wanted to do was bring in these, quote, hero pieces that would almost function as um, usable art, right? Like that it, it was sculptural in quality. It'll be interesting to look at and it'll be a conversation piece, but it'll sit great. And so those will be sprinkled throughout the collections, um, both for the outdoor collection and the indoor. And then on the indoor, it's, it's a, you know, a marriage of what it's called. It's comfort and design. And, you know, we're really bringing the design piece to the table. And I, I really feel like they have the comfort piece mastered. So I'm excited about this partnership. Well, good. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to seeing that when it comes in April. And maybe you'll have to come by uh, with a camera to take a good look at that when April comes around. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we'll be working with them um, already in October. They'll have some of our textiles. So I do a line for Krypton Home. Um, so they launched the Stacey Garcia Home brand a year ago at Calico Stores and with some of the furniture manufacturers. We have another collection that will be hitting this market. And um, Comfort Design will have some of those pieces on their 
bodies in their showroom uh, at October Market already. Well, sounds like we've got a lot of stuff to cover in the upcoming months. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, we're excited. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Yeah, thank you. I And you know what? It's It's been a fun journey. I'm honored to uh, have been interviewed by you. I hope my story, you know, inspires other people to, you know, take that leap of faith and, you know, build their confidence and going for their dreams. And, um you know, it's enjoy the journey, right? Well, that story's not finished. We just enjoyed talking to you for this chapter. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Stacy. Look forward to seeing you in High Point. <laughs>